Okay. If you have a Bible, would you like to turn to the book of Colossians in chapter 4? If you don't have a Bible, then the scripture references will come up on the screen <clears throat> above the stage, so you can follow the, uh, the Bible references we look at up there as well. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 4, and we're going to begin reading from verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they've been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is going to be, I think, uh, the last time that we will spend uh, Sunday morning looking together at the book of Colossians. We've arrived here to the part where, in effect, Paul is signing off. And he signs off with those last four words, grace be with you. Really, that's been the message of this quite short letter to the, to the Colossians. It starts in chapter 1, unsurprisingly. Uh, verse 2 there, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And, uh, and now he's finishing. Grace be with you. Interesting word. What does grace mean? As one Christian author has asked the question, what's so amazing about grace? We often sing the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. And uh, in other songs as well, it kind of comes through loud and clear, but Actually, what is so amazing about it? Clearly, it gripped Paul, so much so that he'd written this letter to the Colossians. What's so amazing about grace? This author who wrote the book, uh, What's So Amazing About Grace, he, he tells basically a whole load of stories to illustrate what we mean, or what the, what the word means when we're looking at grace. And he tells one story that might sound uh, quite familiar as I begin just to recap it. He says this, there's a a family living in wherever, let's say Detroit. Um, I think it was Detroit, anyway. A uh, family living in Detroit, doing fine. Teenage daughter in that household, she's really had enough. She's been living under quite what she feels a pressured regime, having to be in at a certain time, um, having to make do with pocket money, and life just seems a bit of a drag under the authority of her parents, 
she makes life difficult for them, and eventually she decides to run away. She takes with her uh, some valuable possessions and some money belonging to her parents, and they wake up one morning to find her bed is still made. She's not at home. They've got absolutely no idea where she is, and so they don't hear from her for months and months. She, meantime, is traveling from place to place, getting into one relationship after another. She's, uh, a long since time now, used all these possessions that she took with her. The money's gone. Uh, She's destitute. She's really making some bad choices. She's getting into some addictions, and life is not going well. Sometimes the parents get a phone call, but she never says where she is. It's just a quick phone call. They never really get that much information. The phone goes down, and they just have to wait for months and months to find out what's going to happen. She has really made their life difficult. And as this story is told, we're being sort of prepared for what happens, happens next. She rings years later. Mum, Dad, it's me. I want to come home. I'm getting the bus. I'm going to be passing through your town at midnight tomorrow night. She leaves that message on the answer phone. She doesn't know if, if they've picked it up. And if they're not there, her plans are just to continue. She's got somewhere else to go to. She'll try make life work in another place. She's got this one minute opportunity. Hopefully, her parents have heard the message. Hopefully, having heard the message, they're actually willing to come and find her because she knows she's really messed them about. And so we're being prepared for what's about to happen next, thinking perhaps, well, maybe they will turn up. Maybe they will kind of say, well, okay, you can come back. There's your room. Uh, dinner's, uh, breakfast will be at 8 o'clock. We'll see you then. And she's expecting maybe quite a frosty welcome. What happens? She uh, is on this coach, heading into town. She comes to the coach lot, parks, gets out. What's happened is her parents did hear the message, and they gathered every friend, every family member they could find. There were huge banners saying, Welcome home! Our daughter's back. She comes off. She gets a massive hug. She's saying, I'm so sorry. Look, just come home. We've got a party to have. Welcome back into the family. How does that sit? How does that sit to hear that from our perspective now? We can think, well, surely that's not quite right. Surely she, she should have got at least a really stiff telling off. She could come back into the house, maybe. But they'd have to make clear right from the word go. These are the rules. If you mess up again, you're out on your foot. You're out. I'll have nothing more to do with you. Maybe she's expecting that kind of welcome. Maybe we'd be expecting, well, surely what else can she expect? What she gets, the reaction she actually gets, is what we call grace. What God calls grace. What she deserved didn't happen. What she didn't deserve actually happened. She's welcomed back into the household. So what's so amazing about grace? That kind of, it's just one tiny illustration of what grace can mean in people's lives. Looking at this passage then, what are we to make it, make of it? He ends with this, those four words, grace be with you. Other than that, it seems a long list of, of kind of greetings, of encouragements, lots of different names get mentioned, like Tychicus, Aristarchus. It, it makes sense that at the end of the letter, 
at this time, there were loads of people who were saying, oh yeah, I'll say hi. Um, let them know that I'm praying for them and I'm, I'm hoping to be with them soon. There's all these uh, messages being imparted, instructions that are being given. Um, give my greetings to brothers at another church. Read the letter that I sent to them. Um, Epaphras, we've heard about him before. So, so what are we to make of all this? Well, what we see and what we're going to do today in kind of searching out what is so amazing about grace is we're going to see how did the grace of God impact some of the people that are here very briefly mentioned. Now, the grace of God is something that we can read about in theological truths and in Scripture, but it's also something we can see evidenced in people's lives. When God gets hold of someone's life, as we're just hearing from what John shared, actually, transformation comes. There's a change. What's old has gone, and there's something new and wonderfully different. So let's look first at this guy called Tychicus in verse 7. He is highly commended by Paul. It says there in verse 7, he's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. He's been sent kind of with this letter to go and share news with the Colossian church, but he's more than just um, an errand boy. It would seem that he's one of Paul's trusted representatives. He's been with Paul for some time. We, we see that in the book of Acts chapter 20. And verse 4, he's listed there, along with Sopater of Bereas, the son of Pyrrhus from Berea, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. So he's there, he's one of Paul's um, kind of trusted companions, he's been with him a while. We see at the end of the book of Ephesians as well, in Ephesians chapter 6, Similarly there, he's, he's commended and he's, he's sent with that letter to that church at the end of chapter 6 there in, in, 20, in verse 21. So that you may know how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. So he's a trusted guy. What, what do we learn from his life? Well, we can see this. We can see the value of faithfulness. He is praised, he's complimented by Paul for having been faithful. He's not praised, he's not complimented, particularly for having a huge intelligence, charismatic personality. Paul values the fact that this guy has stuck with him through thick and thin, through actually Paul's ministry, which had ups and downs, being chased from town to town by people who were causing riots here, stoning him there, dragging him out of a city, leaving him for dead. It wasn't an easy ride. It wasn't all glamour and fun. This was a tough call on his life. Paul values the fact that this guy Tychicus has stuck with him and has shown incredible faithfulness. You know, sometimes we can place a higher value on, on other things, on things like being exceptionally academically gifted on being the life and soul of a party. Um, a few years in, in kids club team has uh, taught me a great deal about high school musical, uh, which I'm sure that many of you will, uh, will know and love. If you aren't familiar with high school musical, then you're really uh, missing out. Perhaps have some children first and introduce it to them, and that'll be the way through. Um, high school musical 
obviously, as the title of the film suggests, it's about a whole bunch of guys and girls that are at school. And, uh, and each of the characters there seems to have something amazing about them. Um, so Troy, he is amazing at basketball. And so he's the, he's the captain of the team. There's like a subplot that he's actually amazing at singing as well. Uh, there's Gabriella. She's amazing at maths and science. She's a genius. She also happens to be amazing at singing. There's Sharpay, and she's amazing at drama. Now, I don't want to kind of disillusion you. It's, it's a fantastic thing, highly kind of uplifting and so on. Uh, the moral of the story does seem to be that we're all in this together. We've all got to pool our talents and somehow uh, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of win through and everything will work out well. My slightly uh, cynical mind interprets it a little bit like this sometimes as well. That the moral of the story could be seen to be, you have to be amazing. You have to have something amazing about yourself. And so the dilemma for some of these characters is, oh no, I'm amazing at this thing, but I'm also amazing at something else. Can people handle that? Will people accept me for who I am? I'm amazing. Oh, yes. <laughs> if you know it, I guess you know what I mean. Um, and so maybe for us, uh, we can think there's a high value maybe on, on being amazing, being really impressive. We want to make a good Im- impression on people. I can uh, remember... Um, not that many months after asking out my wife, I was uh, wanting to make a very good impression. And so uh, the first time we went down to Bristol to see her family and to meet, for the first time, for me to meet um, her mum and dad and, uh, and kind of hopefully make a favourable impression. I thought I was doing quite well. And uh, it was a Sunday afternoon, mealtime, all having... Um, Fantastic meal. And then it happens. One of those moments where you hope the ground just opens up and totally swallows you. As my now mother-in-law asked me, Dan, tell us something exceptional about yourself. (laughs) Oh, my word. Uh, I, to be honest, I scratched my head. I didn't know what to say at all. And uh, now, having come through that trial... Uh, we can all laugh about it, and uh, I breathe a sigh of relief that I married the daughter. Um, <laughs> but that's can, that can sometimes be uh, maybe what's happening in, in the world. Come on, there's got to be something amazing about you. You've got to be exceptional in some way. Tychicus, this guy here, gets praised not because of amazing stuff he's got. He gets praised for being faithful. It's like, what's the lesson of his life? It's not what you've got, it's what you do with it. He was perhaps just an ordinary guy that Paul met as he went from place to place sharing the gospel. An ordinary guy who got saved, whose life got transformed by Jesus. He didn't suddenly necessarily become hugely intelligent. He didn't necessarily become the life and soul of every party. But he was greatly used by God because of that faithfulness. It's not what you've got. It's what you do with it that counts. Jesus tells a parable in the book of Matthew, and in Matthew chapter 25, 
where in some ways he seems to be making a similar point. It's the well-known parable of the talents. A master is leaving town and going away on a journey, and to three servants he gives different amounts of his money and says, put that money to good work, I will come back, I want to see that that money has, has grown. A talent is a whopping amount of money. So each one, in a sense, is given quite a lot, but they are given different amounts. When the master returns, he goes to his servants to see, okay, what's happened to the money, to the servant that I gave five talents to, what's happened? That servant comes back and says, oh, there's five more to another uh, I think it's given two talents and two more, and then to one doesn't really have any more to share. But what does he praise the servants who've done well? How does he praise them? We see that in Matthew 25, verse 21. His master said to him, Well done, what? Good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. They're praised, they're complimented for faithfulness. And so, in a sense, we see different people get different gifts and different amounts. And we can automatically think, well, is that fair? But the, the point is that actually that's what God does. God gives to different people different talents, different abilities, different personalities, a different call on each and every one of our lives. And he does give things to each and every one of us. Perhaps we can look at each other and just get into a comparison mode. Well, so-and-so seems to be doing far better in in that area. They seem more gifted in this. And we can uh, become kind of worried or we can become competitive. I've got to be impressive somehow. But whereas our master is saying, now what, what have I given you? What have I given you? And what have you done with that? Don't, don't get concerned with what I've given to someone else. The grace of God means that we are all, like this guy Tychicus, given a part to play. We're all given responsibilities or gifts, a mission that God has specifically prepared for each and every one of us. So the question then from T- that comes out of Tychicus's life is, well, what has God given you? Oh, I've not really got anything. No, what has God given you? What has God asked of you? Maybe there are things uh, into the future where you feel, I've got, a, I've got a call from God. And in years to come, uh, God's been telling me that I'm going to do this or going to do that. Well, that may be well be the case. What's God got for you in the here and now? What's God been saying to you here in the here and now? What has God already given to you? And the grace of God means that we do all have a part to play. It's not, though, what we've got, it's what we do with it that counts. Being faithful, perhaps in small things, that then God will reward and God will open a way into other things as well. So that's how the grace of God demonstrated itself in Tychicus's life, who, incidentally, was not a Jew. Now, that might seem like a minor detail, but the fact that he wasn't a Jew is quite important. In fact, Paul makes a point of this, He says in verse 11, having mentioned Aristarchus, Marcus, and Justus, he says, these are the only men of the circumcision, or these are the only uh, Jewish guys that I've got uh, working alongside me. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus gathered 12 disciples who were Jews. 
And so the early church uh, had to grapple with this issue. Jesus has come to bring this amazing good news, this amazing grace. Is it just for this ethnic group of people, or is it for the whole world? And step by step, they come to the understanding and the realization, this good news, this grace is for everyone. It's to be available for everyone. Tychicus was not historically a part of God's people, but God brought him in and put him to work, as it were, in his kingdom. That's the grace of God that brings people in to God's family and says, I do actually want you. I've given you something to do. And here it is. That's Tychicus. Let's look at another guy. The second guy we'll look at today is Onesimus. He is uh, also highly commended, a faithful and beloved brother. It says there in verse 9, who is one of you, we are told. He's, he's one of the Colossians. He's from Colossae, which is interesting because Paul's never been there. Paul's not been to Colossae. So how did he ever come across this guy, Onesimus? Well, Onesimus' background is this. He was a slave who was owned by another guy called Philemon in the Colossian church. Now, he wasn't a Christian. He wasn't saved himself. He was a slave. His status in life was as a non-person. For us, status is single, married, whatever. For this guy, status was not a person. He was a possession. He belonged to this guy, Philemon. And so, he, didn't, he couldn't really expect an amazing lot in life. In the Roman world, large numbers of slaves tried to escape their masters by running away. And that is what this guy, Onesimus, did. He ran away from Philemon. Why do we know that? Well, he went to find Paul. He must have found out somehow about Paul. And he goes and in some ways seeks refuge with Paul. Paul then writes a letter to Philemon, the guy's master, to explain what's happened. Basically, this guy, he's got no status in the world whatsoever, and he's got himself into a huge, huge mess. In the book of Philemon, which is a few pages on from Colossians, in verse 18, Paul writes there about Philemon, uh, about Onesimus rather, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. It's possible then that not only had he run away, but he'd run away, taking some of his master's possessions or belongings, or at the very least, had done his master out of money by loss of earnings that resulted from him not being around. This was pretty serious. He wasn't a person. If he returned to Philemon, Philemon could do anything he wanted with him. In fact, Paul was in a tricky situation because in Roman law, anyone who aided or abetted a slave trying to escape was also up for quite severe punishment. What happens as we see rolling on from that is, well, he started as a slave, he goes to Paul, Paul shares the message of the gospel with him, and he gets saved. He gives his life to Jesus. And so we see in the book of Philemon, this change is something that uh, Paul refers to. It says in verse 10, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became 
in my imprisonment. It's kind of hinting at the fact that actually this guy has come through to salvation in verse 12 as, as well. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart in verse 15 and 16. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Coming to God changed this guy's status from slave to friend, from slave to beloved brother, from slave to faithful minister in Christ. His status was changed by, by what happened. So what do we learn from his life? What do we learn about the grace of God in this man's life? Well, his new life in Christ, it was not limited or defined by the mistakes and the mess that had cropped up in his old life or by who he was in his old life. He wasn't any longer a slave. He'd been set free. As we were hearing that from John, sharing so helpfully. Actually, sometimes we can think of ourselves in a way that's wrong. We can think, ah, I'm I'm terrible, I'm awful, I'm still a slave. No, God comes and transforms us and brings us into a new life. This new life for Onesimus was one that wasn't limited by his old life. It wasn't limited by the mistakes he made. He went from being a slave to a faithful and dear brother. So what does slavery mean for us? Well, thankfully, slavery is something that in this way we don't see uh, immediately in the world around us. But there are types of slavery that can crop up in life. Slavery to, to debt, uh, borrowing money, borrowing a bit more money, borrowing some more money, perhaps with less and less hope of ever being able to pay it back. A, a kind of vicious cycle can grip people in a debt and just think, actually, I'm enslaved by this, I'm trapped by it. How do I get in? The same can be true with addictions, just getting into things and, oh, I'm being dragged into it further and further. How can I get out of this? How can I get out of this situation? I've become trapped. I've become almost a slave to it. Maybe those things are specific for specific individuals. They won't necessarily apply to every, everyone. But there is a type of slavery that does, or at least has, applied to everyone. We see in Romans chapter 6, reading from verse 15, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have, have become obedient from the heart to the standard, standard of teaching to which you were committed. They're talking there about having once been slaves to sin. Slave, kind of compelled or trapped to displease God, where sin was the boss, or sin is the boss. I can remember uh, as a small kid in primary school, that kind of age, and to go into the details might just kind of 
make it sound a bit trivial, but there came a point where I just realized I wasn't really that nice. I realized that I, I wanted to turn over. I'd, I'd, a new term would start at school. And even at that age of seven, eight, or nine, or whatever, I really wanted to turn over a new leaf. I thought, I know I'm not right. There was a particular kid in class whose life, uh, at certain times, I probably made a misery. And I thought, I don't want to do this. But actually, there was something in me that led to that all the time. I, I wanted to turn over a new leaf, but I couldn't. I was a slave to it. Thankfully, God has rescued me out of that by his, by his grace. You know, sometimes for us, maybe like this guy, Anisimus, people can think, Surely I've messed up too much for God to want anything to do with me. Surely the mess that I've got myself into means there's no way to God now. Maybe when I was younger, before all this rubbish happened in life, I would have been able to to come before God. Maybe then he would have accepted me. Maybe that was Onesimus' expectation. Maybe around his master's house he'd... He'd heard a little bit about the gospel. He'd heard a little bit about the good news, but maybe just thought, that's not for me, is it? I mean, I'm a slave. I'm no good. I'm low in the world. My lot in life is rubbish. Maybe then when he goes to Paul, that's when his eyes start to open to the fact, no, this message of the grace of God is for me. It's not limited to people who've already basically been doing okay in life. It's for me. This, this, this grace is for me. So for some of us, we, we can think, or maybe we have thought in the past, I've messed up too much. The lesson from this guy's life is, no, you haven't. You might think, well, I'm just not important enough for God. I'm not significant enough for God. That's a lie. It's a lie. We see that in the Bible. We see it here, actually, in someone's life. We see it demonstrated there in someone's Life. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that uh, issues spontaneously disappeared for this guy, Anisimus. He still had to um, return to his old master to make things right, but now his life was on a different track. And so now he's with Paul as one of his helpers, as, a, as one of the guys on his team. And so Paul sends him back to the Colossians. He's one of you. I wonder what it was like for Anisimus going back there. I wonder what people said to him, oh, Anisimus, Anisimus, who's that, who's that? Oh, you must mean Philemon's slave. Oh, I now know. No, that old label had gone. That old label had gone. And so he's now a faithful and beloved brother. Do you, do you kind of catch Paul's warmth when he's writing all these greetings, when he's writing all these commendations? He massively appreciates People. He massively appreciates Tychicus. He massively appreciates Onesimus. Isn't he just a slave? No. 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 Faithful and beloved brother who's brought into the family of God, welcomed, and actually, yes, Onesimus, I've got plans for you, God says. And therefore, Paul says to him, I've got plans for you. Come and be involved in what is going on. That's what we see of the grace of God in Onesimus' life. Let's look at one more. Let's look at a few verses further down. Mention there is made of a guy called Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Another one of Paul's companions. He's one of Paul's Jewish companions. 
And, um, and he's been on the scene for much longer. In fact, he's been on the scene longer than, than Paul has. He, he wrote one of the Gospels, so he, he'd witnessed um, Jesus' life. Uh, interestingly enough, that is called Mark, just in case you want to find that later. Um, we, he crops up a few times in, in Acts as well. In Acts 12, verse 12, just incidentally there, we find out that he was also called John. It says there, uh, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary. The mother of John, whose other name was Mark, um, was there. So we see him there. We see him a bit further on in Acts 13, 13. It says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Back here in Colossians, how this fascinating instruction that Paul gives to the Colossian church. It's kind of put in brackets in my Bible. It says this, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes, if Mark comes to you, welcome him. Hmm, okay. Well, it immediately raises the question, why would they not have welcomed him? Why possibly would they not have welcomed him? Well, the answer to that is a bit further on in the book of Acts. In Acts 15 and verse 36. It says there, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city, where we proclaim the word of the Lord, and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them uh, to the work. So this dispute arises between Paul and Barnabas. Should we take Mark or not? Paul says, no. Well, he's been around. He knows that he witnessed Jesus' life. But he disappeared. He went off. He went back to Jerusalem. Remember, when we looked at Tychicus, that Paul really valued faithfulness. Paul needed to know that he had guys who were sticking with him. Paul knew that there were, so, there were many challenges ahead, many different situations in which he needed to speak into. He needed a, a, a bunch of guys around him who were firmly committed. It would be all well and good taking Mark along, but he could just disappear again, decide, well, I'm, I'm committed for now, but maybe something better will come along, and I'll decide to do something different. We're not really told why, at that stage, um, Mark left the group. It could have been, perhaps, that he was homesick. He'd, he, all he'd known was Jerusalem and Israel. He'd then gone on the, this missionary journey and perhaps was thinking, actually, I just want to go home to some familiar faces and some familiar people. Perhaps now that Paul was becoming more prominent within this group of, uh, of, of traveling believers, he was just feeling, I'm not quite sure I fit in here now. I, I was, uh, I'm kind of closer to my, my cousin Barnabas and I find it easier when he was leading. I don't find it so easy now when Paul's leading. That could be a reason he thought to go. It could be that as the gospel was now going from Jerusalem into all the world, Mark, who was a Jew, was kind of thinking, actually, I'm not sure whether it should. Actually, I want to go and speak to the Jews. Uh, I'm not quite sure whether I want to be part of this mission into Gentile territory. Maybe that was what was in his mind. But whatever was going on, he backed out. He moved out. Well then, what's the lesson of his life? 
at this point, he has returned to Paul, and Paul is saying, concerning whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Because maybe those Colossian believers have thought, well, we know what's happened before. We know that Paul maybe doesn't get on with this guy. And so we'll just kind of just politely ask him to go. We don't really want much to do with him. No, Paul's saying, no, he's back in. He's, he's back in and he's useful and welcome him. So what's the lesson of God's grace in this respect? You know, when we're looking at Onesimus, we thought, okay, sometimes there's big mistakes that happen before someone becomes a Christian. Someone has an old life. History, um, in bygone ages, that means someone's old life looked really disastrous. Does that disqualify them from God? And we realize, no, it doesn't. In Mark's situation, the mistake, really, was made having been a Christian. Having got saved, he'd been in and around things for some time. And then he kind of backs out of things. So what's the lesson of God's grace here? Well, God is a God of second chances. God is a God who restores people. Mark was restored. God's plans for our lives aren't scuppered if we make a mistake. God's plan for your life isn't ruined if you made a poor decision, even quite recently. Paul talks about um, Mark later on as well in, in the book of 2 Timothy. And chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 9, he's writing to another of his um, friends, Timothy. He says this, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Thessalonica. So there it's happened again. Paul gets deserted. A nicer, a, a, a more prefer, preferable option comes along for Demas. And so he goes. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful for me in my ministry. Paul doesn't just write someone off because of one mistake. God doesn't just write someone off because of a mistake. Paul doesn't bear an ongoing grudge towards Mark. God doesn't bear an ongoing grudge to Mark. Well, you had your chance, mate, but you blew it. And that's it for you. Sometimes that's what we can think as Christians. Oh, have I had my chance? Was that it? Have I now blown it? No. These three lives show us what the grace of God is like in practice. Working out differently, but unmistakable in each person. The grace of God. Giving to them what we, all of us don't deserve. Bringing them in. Bringing people in to God's family and saying, actually, I have got a part for you to play. I've got a role for you to play. Now, sometimes it's easier to recognize the evidence of God's grace in other people's lives. And that's why it's so important that we continue meeting together. Because actually, we're then in a position where we can encourage what God is doing in each other's lives. Sometimes we can just get bogged down with, oh, have I blown it? Am I kind of insignificant in God's plans? Maybe I don't feel quite as talented as some people that are around me. And I just think, oh, am I just here to make up the numbers? Well, we need each other to bring encouragement that actually God's grace is for us all and God's kingdom is for us all.
And so maybe, having looked at these three lives, there are people here who need to freshly accept God's grace today in its many and varied forms. It might be that you are here today and you've never known the grace of God. You've never known what it means to be forgiven of all your sin. Maybe, like me, as an eight-year-old, you're thinking, I'm just messed up. And I know that what I'm doing is not great. And it seems like something else is the master. Something is the boss in my life. It's sin. It's kind of keeping me away from God. It's displeasing God. And it's frustrating. And so the grace of God is there for people to be free from sin. To no longer be slaves to sin, but to come into the relationship with God that God has always intended for you. That's the grace of God that maybe some people need to receive here today. It could be the grace to just keep going faithfully in what God has given you to do. You know, God's spoken to you. You know, God has got a call on your life. And you maybe have certain responsibilities at the moment. And maybe you need God's grace to help you press through in some difficult situations. For Tychicus, along with Paul, it was not an easy life. It wasn't just straightforward. There was persecution. There was opposition. There was trials. There were riots. There was abuse left, right and center from people that didn't want the gospel to spread. Tychicus had the grace from God to continue to be faithful. Maybe that's the grace that you need to receive today. To stick at it. To stick at what God has given you. Or maybe it is the grace of needing God's restoration. As a Christian, God has severed that root of slavery to sin and he's called you into your family. And as we all know, that doesn't mean that we're therefore immune from making mistakes or that we're immune from uh, sin or that we're immune from messing up a relationship. We're thinking, oh no, I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I hadn't done that. And those kind of things can start to sow these seeds where we're thinking, oh, that's it for me. It's almost like, like MPs, when they get disgraced, they just go to the back benches and you don't really hear much about them again. Kind of making up the numbers, turning up occasionally to vote, but that's really it. And sometimes as Christians, we can think the same. I had my time, but maybe God's call on my life now is not that significant because I had my chance and I blew it. Sometimes subtly, that, can be, that, that kind of line of thinking can come in for people of an older age, if I can just put it like that. Where you can just think, yeah, now is the time for young people. I have my chance. I've had my time. Now is the time for young people to come through. And God's got a lot for them. God has got a lot for you. Don't disqualify yourself. This is what the grace of God does. It qualifies us, not only to belong in God's people, but to be used by God in his kingdom. So here is this wonderful grace of God. What's so amazing about grace? Well, we've just glimpsed it briefly in these three lives. So we're going to ask the band to come up and they're going to lead us in in another song of worship. We're going to give you an opportunity to respond to either of those three things. But let's look to God now. Let's pray to him.